0: And a woman came in and agreed to the assessment to get her gift card. And I asked her, do you use condoms? She said, no. The next question, why not? And she said, because I get paid more not to. So she was a sex worker. I said, "Okay." She said, and if I have one child to get food stamps, and if I have two children, I'll get a place to live. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Fearless with Mark and Amber,
1: the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. Today, we are picking back up with the second part of our interview with Monica Klein from It Takes a Family. And if you missed last week's episode, you can go back and search the archives at fearlessfeatures.org. But today, the second part of her interview. So she, Monica, was a comprehensive sex educator, Mm
2: -hmm. trained, trained and worked for Planned Parenthood
1: for, for 10 years. Mm hmm. And then came to Christ and left and started It Takes a Family to really equip families in talking to their children about sex mm-hmm. instead of leaving it up to the public school systems and other people. Because what we found while working on our new documentary film, The Mind Polluters, which talks about comprehensive sex ed in the public school systems and just the, the sexualization of our children through the schools and she even she even talks about you know through education people change their behavior who's educating your children on sex and relationships and who do you think really should be educating your children on sex and relationships and I think you're really gonna find and it's gonna be really eye-opening listening to Monica go through what they actually teach children in the classroom
2: I was thinking as we were listening to this there's a of course, I remember movie quotes, right? Yeah, right. And, and I remember uh, a TV commercial from when I was growing up. So this would have been probably in the early 90s. And it was, I think it was a PSA, a mm-hmm. public service announcement. And I don't remember it line by line, but I remember the content and that it was a young, uh, good-looking teenage male. And he's talking right into the camera. And he's talking about how beautiful this girl is and all these things he's going to do with her and wine and diner and blah, blah, blah. And then he, the the shot goes close and he's, he's obviously talking to you as a parent. And he says, because if you don't talk to your daughter about sex, I will. Mm -hmm. And that's the end of the spot. And I, I, that flashback came to me while we were listening to this, because this this notion of you're a parent, you're too stupid to have these conversations. This mm-hmm. is what's reinforced in our whole culture. We, mm-hmm. we talk about this with our with our daughters. There are shows that they love to watch that we have said no more. Because mm-hmm. the stereotypes that the world reinforces of parents and especially fathers yeah, is that dads are dumb mm-hmm. if they're there at all. And the kids, uh, you know, just have figured everything else out on their own. Mm-hmm. And they seem to have this mysterious, endless wealth, you know, <laughs> to buy whatever they want. <laughs> and they don't have to really, uh, the, the only concerns they have is, you know, who's their boyfriend going to be and who are they going to have sex with? Mm-hmm. And it's this, it's this constant barrage of this of this Perversion. negative this perverted stereotype mm-hmm. and it really of course until you're a dad you don't realize this um mm-hmm. but it really really frustrates me to see that because um they learn it from somewhere mm-hmm. and and they're taught by our entertainment culture that mom and dad are stupid and they can't talk to you about this can't
1: be trusted you gotta right. go somewhere else to get help. Um, and, and she, and she discusses that and talks about that. It clearly lays it out for you to see, but there is, there is one thing before we get into her conversation, the second part of it, that it, we, we did have to take out, uh, an explicit conversation that she has with a little girl. So we have, you know, cleaned up some of that audio. Mm-hmm. We just, It's just a little too intense. And I think for a lot of you, you understand. Listen, we don't, we don't, just like we don't need to tell our kids everything. You know, we feel it's our job as well. We don't have to make everything so explicit. I mean.
2: Yeah. And when we when we record these things and we had this conversation with Monica when we were there and she said how I don't know how explicit you want to get. And Mm -hmm. we what we said was give us everything Mm -hmm. and let us determine that as we go. Yeah. And so it's it's uh, because I
1: know this is shocking to a lot of people because like like us, you know, you're along with the journey with us. You know, we are new to this as much as you are. And so we bring you guys and give you guys as much information and things that we're learning along mm-hmm. the way. So just to be respectful of where everybody's at, I think we just we really had to pull some of that. So just know that when she gets to the part of talking about being in the classroom that we did, you know, take out some of that audio.
2: Mm-hmm. It's it's necessary. That's that's what we're here to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: just like we would never put it in the film. I right, we,
2: right, we, we wouldn't we would not put it in the film. There's a lot of things like that. That you get, give me everything, and then let me decide. It's uh, and but, so, but
1: but just to know that this is a reality that kids are facing, yeah, like we don't want to talk about it, but yet we have you know 10, 11, 12, 13 year olds talking about it, mm-hmm. so somebody's got to talk about
2: it. <laughs> and and I would add, too, it's not, it's not because somebody like Monica wants to talk about it, it's she paused and said, basically, this can get very explicit. Do you want me to tell you? really what happened Right. or do you want me to edit it? Yeah. And we said, you tell us what happened and and let us edit it. So this is what she dealt with. Right.
1: So with that, let's pick up where we left off on Tuesday with part two of our interview with Monica Klein.
0: So I think a lot of times people are wondering, well, how do the kids even get to the Planned Parenthood? So um, I have a good friend in the pro-life movement who said, Monica, so you basically are, you know, proselytized for a Planned Parenthood. (laughs) It's like, yeah, I guess I did. So when I say that I worked 40 hours a week doing this, that's literally what I did. So I walked the streets of these neighborhoods and I met the children and I met the adults. I met the drug users. I met the women who were sex workers. Um, But in particular with the children, we would visit their parents, mostly in the areas that these are high risk areas. So I would go to the government housing. And I would talk to the parents. Sometimes mom was actually a sex worker and I would drop off condoms with mom. When we knew that the bus was about to drop off the kids, we would return and we would then talk to the children as they're getting home from school. We would hold classes about healthy relationships or healthy friendships in community centers and gain their confidence through Help, you know, those kind of programs before we introduce them to, to HIV prevention or comprehensive sex education where we would talk about sex. So when you start talking about relationships, you can slowly get to talking about sex. And so that's how we would get to the kids. And so, you know, it, it, we would talk to them about something that seemed very, um, you know, normal. Uh, And then we would let them know if they needed more information, they could contact us here. And if they needed this kind of service, they could contact Planned Parenthood. And so we would then connect them with different um, resources in their communities. And we were always present. When I say that this was my job to communicate with the community, I'm not kidding. I would show up to work. I'd fill up my backpack full of condoms. And then I would hit the street, walk the street. How many people do you think are employed to do that? Um, I haven't looked into it recently. You know, back in, in the times that I was doing it, um, we had several organizations, for example, in in Austin. And so there was my organization, uh, Algo Informecida. There was the STD clinic that had their own outreach workers. There was Aid Services of Austin. They had their own outreach workers. And so any organization that had those services, they would get that money from the CDC to conduct the outreach. It is all over the nation. All over the nation. From the CDC is where you got your funding to do this. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Um, Now, is it important to talk to the general population, uh, you know, to talk to the population about HIV prevention, STDs and disease prevention? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's when we're getting to grooming children for sex that becomes a huge problem. I still had a problem many times even with adults, though. You know, I would go into rehab centers and talk to them about HIV prevention, Um, or I would go and to the parts of the neighborhood that I knew IV drug users would sit down and, you know, 12th and Chacon at least back then, is where they would always sit. And they would just sit there. It was just certain areas of town that we knew that they would hang out, basically. Uh, The needle exchange would show up, which was a van that would, you could exchange your needles for clean ones so that, again so that you wouldn't be transmitting diseases and things like that. Um, But there wasn't a whole lot of services that would help people get off of drugs or rehabilitate them into living a more healthy life. Now, the CDC at some point in my career did have um, evidence-based interventions for this. And so I actually went to the CDC and in Atlanta, and we got to hear about the different evidence-based interventions, HIV prevention, and to choose which ones we wanted to use in our own community. And I did ask at the meeting, what makes these outreach you know, approaches evidence-based? What does that mean? And so they basically said, well, these were uh, programs that were tested in different communities. And I said, but how are they tested? And I said, well, they, they said they explained that, well, we would provide them with information about HIV and STDs and how they're transmitted and, you know, sexual activities, bodily fluids, all of that. We would do a pre-assessment. We would ask them, are you using condoms uh, to assess? You know, we would ask why they're, are you not using condoms if you're not? Uh, what keeps you from using the condoms? You just kind of get a whole view of of why the condom use wasn't being used consistently, and then it was really to prevent the, pre- present them with the disease, how it's how it's uh, transmitted, and then to go into risk reduction, which is if you use a condom, you can reduce your risk for getting this disease. And so there was a behavior change model that through education, people would change their behavior and start using condoms consistently. What we found over the, and and, and I said, well, how do you know if they're using those condoms consistently? So you're saying that these programs are actually evidence-based. You're You're basically saying that people start using condoms because of this program. How do you know that? Mm-hmm. And they said, well, they just tell us. And I said, really? Is that it? Like, yeah, we do a post-test, you know, a few months later and ask them, are you using condoms now and how often? I was like, so that's your basis for being evidence-based. Just they, they just tell you. Mm -hmm. And they said, yes. Mm -hmm. So even then, yeah, yeah, even then I thought, okay, that, that's not really a (laughs) a good way of, of, you know, measuring that. Um, so we still chose our evidence based interventions. We brought mm-hmm. them to Austin. I then became the, the, the manager of both the women's outreach and the men's outreach. Uh, they had their own programs. Very one's very specific for men who have sex with men. The other one was very specific to women of color of childbearing age. And we conducted our assessment according to our curriculum. And so I was working uh, with the women. And what we do in order to actually get people to participate in the program is and do a post, you know, a pretest and a post test is we offer them an incentive like a grocery gift card. Mm -hmm. So we're giving out grocery gift cards and a woman came in um, and agreed to the assessment to get her gift card. And I asked her, do you use condoms? She said, no. The next question, why not? And she said, because I get paid more not to. So she was a sex worker. Mm -hmm. I said, okay. And she said, and if I have one child to get food stamps, and if I have two children, I'll get a place to live. At this point, many things had changed in my life. Um, And my first thought was number one, this, this intervention is not going to help her because it doesn't address her actual need. And number two, as a Christian at that point, I realized she needs Christ. She needs someone who can come into her life and help her out of this situation and give her hope. And this intervention was not gonna do it. So this intervention was all about behavior change to using condoms. So that's what I want people to understand that comprehensive sex education, their their big you know solution is to get people to use condoms and use them consistently. I mean, that's, that's it. The truth is though, is that condoms fail and human, with human error, um, and people don't always use them consistently. So one of the problems that we saw, for example, with men who have sex with men, is that the men came at staff meetings and said, we're having an issue because gay men are now saying, we're gonna get HIV anyway, who cares? And they'd refuse to use condoms because they figured it was inevitable that they were gonna get HIV anyway.
1: So let's talk about comprehensive sex ed and what it is so that people yeah.
0: understand so real, it's real hard truth. Yeah. So when you, if you ever have the chance to look at a comprehensive sex education curriculum, you're going to see that they have objectives. Now, there are objectives that they write down, and then there's objectives overall for the ideology behind comprehensive sex education. Their objective is to increase the use of condoms um, that the people use them consistently, including children, which means that they're going to teach them not only how to use condoms, educate them on, on STDs, how they're transmitted, getting testing. Um, but it's also about how do you convince your sexual partner to use that condom, which means that they role play and are and practice eroticizing the use of condoms and lubrication to convince your partner to use it. So it's not just about talking about the biology of things. It's also teaching children and even adults, but, you know, I want to focus on children here, teaching them about sexual activity, assuming that they're going to be sexual at a young age, teaching them about the various ways they can be sexual and how to convince and how to eroticize the use of condoms with their partners and then getting tested and having abortions. Now, this is all in the name of quote unquote health. What's really happening, though, the the full ideology of this is that they want to sexualize children. They groom the children for sexual activity. One of the things that my mentor told me at the very beginning is that the children are going to be inhibited to talk to me about sex. So she's admitting that children are modest. And children are. They are modest. Um, And they are nervous about talking about sex. So she's admitting that to me. And she said one of the ways you can break down their inhibitions is through an icebreaker that she taught me. And it was basically to, to get the children to speak in sexual terms. Uh, and so the activity is, I want you to list and shout out all the slang names for your body parts and for sexual activity. And so these children are nervous at first, but when they see that the authority or the educator in the classroom is encouraging them to do it, they start to speak it. And so it's very crass, very, very crass. And what this exercise is doing, as she said, it's breaking down their inhibitions about sex. They are now learning that they can talk about sex in a dehumanizing way and that it's funny and it's fun and that you can do it in a public place and with adults as well. So that's they. it is definitely breaking down their inhibitions to be able to talk about sex as though it's just a recreational activity and that it is not private. And again, that it's safe to talk to adults about sex. The rest of the process, once they break down those inhibitions, then they start, we start to introduce sexual activities and we start talking about role-playing so that they know how to communicate about sex, what to ask for and seeking pleasure. And so if you were to compare comprehensive sex education activities to what a sexual predator would do, sexual predators and comprehensive sex education both break down inhibitions. That's what they start with. They also gain trust with the child and then slowly start to get them towards sexual activity. It's very, very similar. And so that is really the behind the scenes Mm Uh, piece of comprehensive sex education. That's not what they say in a curriculum, but that is exactly what they're doing. And so many people say and argue comprehensive sex education doesn't sexualize children. It doesn't encourage them to have sex. It's just public health information. And that is absolutely false. And I'll illustrate that with some stories. So um Planned Parenthood um, had a uh, a class that they were scheduled to conduct at an alternative school in East Austin. An alternative school is, is really a last chance for these kids to get an education. They've been kicked out of every other school, and now they're at this alternative school. So I say that to say that these are really high-risk, rambunctious kids. Um, so they were not able to go and do the presentation, so they called me and said, can you fill in for us? I said, Sure. I show up at the alternative school. I have a classroom of 13-year-old boys and girls. The teacher leaves the room so she doesn't have to witness the education. Otherwise, you know, because it wasn't really allowed at that time. Um, And I had the class all to myself. And I would always start the class by using either an easel board or a whiteboard. And I would write down oral sex, vaginal sex, anal sex. And on the other side, I would write down uh, blood, semen, vaginal secretions. So here we're gonna talk about sexual activity, and all of the bodily fluids that would be transmitting HIV, STDs, things like that. And and I started the conversation. And as I'm talking about all of this, a little girl raises her hand from the back of the room. And uh, and I'm gonna share this just as as she said it to me. And she was not being disrespectful. This was just her reality and the reality of these kids. And she said, can you teach me how to do it better? So I took a breath because I was actually surprised, even though I had been exposed to so many things. This was a 13-year-old girl telling me this. Mm -hmm. I said, well, first, have you ever considered just not doing the activity that you don't like? And she just looked at me surprised. Now, my mentor had taught me that if I ever talked about, or if I ever told children that they don't have to have sex, that they would feel judged and they would shut down. Mm -hmm. She didn't look shut down. She just looked at me like, what? What did you, you know, really? Mm -hmm. All the other kids straightened up in their seats, in their desks, and they gave me their full attention. And at that moment, I knew I had said something to them that they hadn't heard of before. Mm -hmm. And I said, guys, do you realize you don't have to have sex? And I pointed to the board behind me and I said, do you realize you don't have to have vaginal sex, oral sex, or anal sex? And if you don't, you don't have to ever come in contact with someone else's bodily fluids, semen, vaginal secretions in blood. And if you don't get in touch with those bodily fluids, you can't transmit disease. So you won't get a disease and you won't conceive a child. You won't get pregnant. And they just stared at me silent. And the little girl, the same one, raised her hand again. And she said, ma'am, no one's ever told us that. And that was my realization, that in my years of walking the streets and waiting for those kids to get off the school bus and their whole experience in their community and their upbringing, no one, not their family, not the public health educators, had ever told them that they don't have to be sexually active. And the children are smart, and they know that if you're coming into their classroom to talk about sex and condoms, then that means that you are telling them to be sexually active. So that really hit me. And next thing I know, these kids are talking about ways they could abstain from having sex. And it was amazing. So. These kids started saying things like, you know, now they, they all lived in government housing and it was a particular one there in Austin. And, and they said, guys, um, you know, the community center has free movies and free snacks. We could always just go watch movies and eat free snacks. And they're like, yeah. And then another kid said, a little boy, it was actually really cute. He said, you know, we can also just go to the park and the community center has free basketballs. We could just go play basketball. And the same little girl that had raised her hand and asked the question about oral sex, she got a little attitude. She said, boy, you know I'm better at basketball than you are. I will kick your butt on the court. And he said, yeah, I know, but it'll be fun anyway. Almost relieved. They were relieved. And they continued to discuss very innocent ways that they could interact with each other without touching one another. And I let them... I, I didn't give them any suggestions. I just said what I said. You actually don't have to do this if you don't like it. Them talking about abstaining, on their, just them doing that themselves, they weren't even asking me permission. They were just like, they huddled to, with each other and started coming up with all these ideas. And I let them do it. But a little girl did, a different girl, moved away from the group and came to me and she whispered. And it still makes me want to tear up a little bit. She said... I can't do what they're doing. I said, well, what do you mean? She said, I I can't not have sex. I said, well, why not? She said, because I'm already sexually active and everyone expects me to be sexually active. So now I can't say no. I said, no, sweetie, absolutely not. I said, no one, no one has the right to tell you to have sex or to force you or to convince you to do it. If you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. I said, as a matter of fact, you don't have to have sex again until you get married. Or if you never want to have sex, you don't have to do that either. That is completely up to you. Mm -hmm. She smiled, went back to the group, and joined them in the conversation about how they could avoid having sex. And, you know, they weren't even using the words, I'm going to avoid having sex. They were just saying, hey, we can do this. We can do this. We can do all these other things. Mm -hmm. That made me realize how hungry our children really are for their innocence, and that it is a myth. Now, it is true that children are curious. We should not judge them for that. We should not get angry at our children for being curious. Absolutely not asking questions, having those feelings, no problem. But the truth is, they're not truly seeking out sexual activity. They are seeking out innocence, and they really do want to be children. And just because they're going through puberty doesn't mean that they have to be sexually active. And so these kids just really embraced the belief and the the value of avoiding sex. And all it took was one person saying, you don't have to do the thing that you don't like doing. So you don't have to have sex if you don't like it. And all those kids did not like it. Again, these were not kids that people are saying, oh, but they grew up in the church or they have really good families. No, it's very possible that at least one kid in that group had a mom who was a sex worker. And I was delivering condoms to her house every single day or once a week, probably once a week. So who should be who should be talking to kids about sex? Who should be training our children? It is important for me And I believe for our society that parents start engaging their children in these conversations. But I also know that as adults, we ourselves have been groomed to believe that all children are going to inevitably become sexually active um, and, and that we have to talk to them in a graphic way. And that's absolutely a lie. It does not have to be graphic, and we do not have to expose our children to things that they don't need. We need to protect them as parents. And when and the truth is, is that these public health educators that are promoting comprehensive sex education, they believe, not only do they say that parents are a barrier to service, they also say that parents are uneducated, ill-equipped, too afraid, and that you're, you're just not qualified to talk about this. They don't want parents talking to their children. This is why Planned Parenthood uses the word parenthood. They know that family and parenthood is powerful, which is why they've adopted that name. The truth is, and why I created It Takes a Family, is that parents are powerful. Mm -hmm. This is why they're trying to keep parents away. They know parents are powerful. I want to help educate parents so that you feel confident, the parent feels confident to be able to speak to their own children about these things. And so I teach parents about the graphic things in the culture, not because I want them to teach their children about it, but because I want the parent to be aware of what possibly could be exposed to your child, have you think about it, assess what is right, and be able to communicate with your child about those things when the time comes because our children need to know that we are leaders, which means we need to, we need to have our pulse on the culture so that we can give our children the proper response. Thank you guys
1: so much for sticking around to the end. I hope this has been um, helpful information for you guys to understand what's happening to our children in the classrooms. And if you're horrified, good. We were too.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm horrified every day. <sighs>
1: So it's time for all of us to use our voices to protect school children everywhere, kids everywhere. It doesn't matter if they're school children like kids are kids. Let them be kids. And I also want to let you know that Monica, she is an excellent keynote speaker who would love to join your conference or fundraiser event and share with your audience her expertise. And you can contact her through her website at ItTakesAFamily.org. You can also check out our website, fearlessfeatures.org, where you can learn more about our new documentary film, The Mind Polluters. That's all about the comprehensive sex ed and the sexualization of our children through the education system. Thank you guys so much. Have a wonderfully blessed day. We will talk to you again next week.